Well, welcome to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. We have a very special treat today. We have uh, an author by the name of Sally Reed, who's recently written a book entitled Night's Bright Darkness, A Modern Conversion Story. And we're very excited to uh, be able to entertain uh, Sally, at least uh, via telephone for an interview today, uh, to explore her experience, her epiphany, if you will. As we um, begin uh, the celebration of the epiphany, uh, we look forward to hearing about her own experience in that regard, her life experience, uh, which she shared so beautifully in this book, again, Night's Bright Darkness. Um, I'm going to let Francis Harry, my co-host, who's with me in studio today. How are you, Francis? I'm filled with grace and you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to let Francis take us through the a brief bio of Sally. And also in studio today, we have the individual who brought Sally's uh, book to our attention, uh, Tim Beat, a member of our local Carmelite community. How are you today, Tim? Great. Good to be here. Well, I also, uh, before I ask you to read the bio, Francis, I'm going to go ahead and uh, just introduce Sally so that the audience can hear her lovely British voice. Sally, how are you today? I'm fine, thanks. And thanks for having me on the show. Well, we're looking forward to the conversation. Um, I don't know how much you were able to uh, uh, investigate Carmelite Conversations and look into what we do in sort of the forum uh, that we uh, that we create, but it is to help people who are living the secular life understand how the principles of Carmelite spirituality uh, can be applied uh, throughout the course of our daily activities. And certainly your story is a model of that, not only in terms of uh, how you were brought to the Catholic faith, but also the way that you continue to live that out. So we're looking very much forward to engaging you in this conversation and hearing what you have to say. But I'm going to let Francis first uh, just give a little background, Sally, on you and, and uh, your uh, biographical sketch. All right. I'll give her the bio, and then I want to have an opening prayer, because uh, we always like to start and finish our programs with a prayer. Um, here's, a, here's a little bit about Sally Reed. She's an award-winning poet and an author of three books of poetry published by Blood Axe Books. She has an MA in creative writing from the University of South Dakota, and she is now poet in residence of the Hermitage of the Three Holy Hierarchs and lives near Rome. We're talking Rome, Italy. Woohoo! And she is a fellow of the Institute of Creative and Critical Writing at Birmingham City University in the UK. You know, she was once an atheist, but she converted to Catholicism in, in a very fascinating nine month maternity. I would say that. Nine months. <laughs> and, um, so she at one time, uh, was anti-Catholic, but in the midst of writing a book, um, during her research, she talked to a Catholic priest, and that was the beginning. And she's going to fill us in on so much more and how the Carmelites come into play all that. So, Sally, we are so excited to hear about your um, epiphany and your encounters. Um, but before we get into that, Sally, um, we want to start with a prayer. And this prayer um, actually comes from Father Gofiend's The church's year and it's specifically for epiphany because um typically we celebrate epiphany on january 6th but in the united states the um, bishops have moved that to sunday january the 8th and um yet 
uh, we're very much into uh, the revelation, the manifestation, the epiphany of our Lord. And hearing Sally's story today will certainly keep us in that spirit. So let us begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Give us, O divine Savior, the faith of those eastern kings. Enlighten our understanding with the light which enlightened them. And move our hearts that we may follow this light and sincerely seek you who have first sought us. Grant also that we may really find you. And with the wise men, we may adore you in spirit and in truth. And to bring to you the gold of love, the frankincense of prayer, and the myrrh of penance and mortification. That having here offered you the sacrifice of our faith, we may adore you in your eternal glory. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. And again, thank you, Sally, for joining us. I, I do want to uh, begin with sort of a general question about this conversion experience. And, of course, I've had the great privilege of reading your book, uh, so I have some more, uh, uh, I guess, intimate detail than our listeners do uh, who may not have read the book. But um, let me just ask you to begin with uh, sort of a high level, if you will, a short version of your experience, the transition that Francis um, uh, gave us some insight on from an atheist uh, uprising, uh, uh, childhood rather, to uh, your conversion experience and ultimately to uh, the Catholic Church? Yeah, well, I was certainly raised an atheist, as you say, and uh, had a very strong father who was very much an atheist and, and brought me up to believe that organized religion was evil and that there was no God at all. And that was a position I held really through all my childhood and into my um, early adulthood. But I was always a seeker, I would say, and I, I think that I could see how attractive religion could be, perhaps, although I thought a lot of it was pretty stupid, I have to be honest. Um, but no matter how, how hard I looked, I, I always, I could never see a God. I, I, I was convinced that the, the idea of a God was, was ridiculous and, and simply not something I could pursue. I, I looked hard and I, I could see nothing. And then, when I was 39, I was, uh, I'd written some poetry and had that published, and I was researching a book, as you say, about uh, female sexuality. And I was living near Rome with my husband and my little girl. And in the course of my research, I contacted a Catholic priest. And it was the strangest experience, that the nine months <laughs> of my conversion, because evidently what happened was I, I disliked the church enormously. I really thought Catholicism was, was heinous, actually. And this priest was so intelligent mm. and so kind and so nice that I felt uh, I, I didn't understand how he could be a Catholic. So I asked him if I could talk to him about the faith. And he said, yes. So we began talking and we began arguing. But then evidently at that point in my life, my soul had prepared itself and with God's grace had become prepared for the most enormous epiphany. And in April of 2010, uh, I had the first huge epiphany, which was that I could suddenly see that there was a God. And at that point, I I didn't even know it was God the Father. You know, I, I didn't know that it was a Christian God. I just could see that there was a God without going into all the circumstances of this happening, which was basically a few minutes sitting on the edge of my bed reading a book. I suddenly saw it, and it was this incredible moment where I say in the book it was like the sky just peeled away, 
and suddenly I felt mm. this enormous sense of possibility. So that was the first big, big change, and that, that led to a, an enormous sense of tumult. I mean, I felt the beginnings of joy, but when you're dealing with a faceless God and you don't know Christ, then it's a very scary God, in my experience. And it led me on this quest of, you know, what's, what's going on? What kind of God is this? What do I do now? And it led to another experience, which um, we'll probably get to a bit later, perhaps, in the program, where I, I had this very strange experience, um, which I, I identified later, and I'm talking much later, as, um, as an experience of the Holy Spirit. Because one night when I was up with insomnia, and I was very, very churned up, and I had this very strange sensation, and tears just showered down my face, and I felt this enormous... I would say it was a kind of a purification. Um, and that mm-hmm. led on to the, the final great experience of, of that spring, which was only a few weeks later. It was in the May. And again, I was, I was very, very churned up because I still had not identified what this was about. I, I didn't know it was the Holy Spirit that had visited me that time. I did not know that it was God the Father, as in a Christian God. And, um, and in the May, I went into this little church, uh, a Carmelite church by the sea, and I went inside and sat down as I, as I had been doing before I picked up my daughter from school and and I was crying because I was so churned up and so my whole world had been sort of turned upside down and I looked up at this icon of Christ and I said aloud if you're there you have to help me and this amazing experience occurred where my my tears just dried my face relaxed and it was as though this presence came down to me and seemed to simultaneously lift me up and and I knew it was Christ it was the, and it was it seemed to complete me and to change me but in a sense that restored myself to me and i walked out of the church a christian and uh and from well, that, then it was this kind of quest to decide which denomination i would belong to etc cetera, etc cetera, and and it brought me to the catholic church yeah we absolutely want to explore that transition as well sally but i'm going to ask you to go back just a little bit Uh, based on a phrase that you used just a moment ago, and I'm going to do this in the context of three examples that you've given in the book, Um, the the phrase you use is that your soul had been prepared. And I'm interested in that because I think when we talk about conversion stories so often, um, we want to know what led up to it. It isn't just a moment that occurs, but rather... Um, in some ways, in many ways, perhaps, the soul has been prepared. And if you'll remember these, great. If not, I'm happy to go back through them. But there are three instances for me in the book that I think you articulate led to your preparation. The first was your your own relationship with your father. And I will will ask you to reflect on that a little bit. Uh, His admirable characteristics, despite um, what you outline as his atheism, uh, he certainly seemed to have some very admirable characteristics, and I want you to reflect on that. The second were your experiences, uh, early experiences in the hospital, the the nursing responsibilities you had, especially with the more challenging patients, which I think, personally, if I can speculate, uh, contributed in some significant way to the preparation of your heart. And thirdly, and I'm going to read a, a section from your own book, if you will, uh, thirdly, would be your um, devotion, if you will, to writing and writing as a process, both of healing and discovery. And if I may, I'll read from your own writing. Um, on page 19 of your text, you wrote, Why writing about these truths was so important didn't elude me. 
I knew that literature redeemed human experience. It saved it from being forgotten and misunderstood. It ennobled pain through beauty and form. The locus in our consciousness, I was fond of telling people, that houses the knowledge of our own mortality, gives us our tendency to be religious and also our predilection to be creative. I thought those were beautiful words. And so in the context of your experience with your father, your uh, early experiences in the hospital, and the way that both of those manifested themselves in writing, can you talk about the idea of your soul being prepared for this conversion? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that my father, you know, as, I, as I've said, he, he was very altruistic. So although he was an atheist, I was brought up to believe in doing good and to and in helping the vulnerable. So I think that was very important. But I think even more important, my father, uh, as I say later in the book, he, he would never accept a half-truth or a lie. And so he brought me up to be very skeptical and to be very rigorous in what I accepted. And I think that that was very important because... There is something, um, I quote Simone Weil, who said that atheism is a kind of purification. And I think that that's true. I think that people who are um, proper atheists, genuine atheists, who have really examined evidence and, and asked with, a, with an open and an honest heart um, and haven't accepted half-truths and haven't accepted false religions, I think that their soul is becoming pre- pre- prepared. It is a kind of a, a strange purification. So I would say all that was very important. Um, and then with regard to the patients that I nursed, yeah, I, I think that the dying patients, um, the demented patients, the patients who had Alzheimer's in such an advanced state that they didn't know who they were anymore, they couldn't even recall their own name, I think that that led me to question, you know, where is the soul? What is the soul? You know, how do we value a life? When do we say that a life is not worth living? When would we apply euthanasia? And although intellectually I didn't change in my 20s, emotionally and um, in the state of my soul, I, I did. I think that that was very preparatory work. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I would go on to say, actually, I think that the, the main event that prepared, although, of course, it, it's all a continuum, but one thing I always come back to is what I, I describe as my, my rock-bottom period, which was when, when my father died and I was nursing, which was very challenging work. And um, because it was psychiatric nursing, so it was dealing with a lot of darkness. And at the same time, I was involved in a very bad love affair, and I really hit rock bottom. It was it was an existential crisis, and I think it was it was. Mm. I look back and and I can see that, as I say, God's absence was so intense that it now seems to signify His presence. And I see that as preparatory work for the soul. It's almost like if I hadn't been through that and that terrible, terrible darkness. I wouldn't have had that incredible illumination that happened so many years later. And is that actually where the poetry began, or had it begun before that even? Oh, I think the, no, the poetry started a long time before, even as a child. I, I'd always written. And I think that the poetry got serious when I was nursing, because as I say, I needed, I needed to give form to things that were so difficult. So that was in my early 20s. And then it, it accelerated when my father died. I think I didn't write very good poetry until after my father died because I think that it um, again the soul has to go through a certain amount to produce things that are strong Sally I read in an interview that you said once as a Catholic I see poetry and art in general 
as the best way apart from prayer of communicating with the divine. Talk to us a little bit about how you see poetry as communicating with God. Yeah, well, I think it's because um, when you write a poem or when you write anything, actually, you're, you're trying to touch truth. You're digging and digging and trying to get at those those things that are so difficult to express and to get to the deepest level of truth that there possibly is. And, and I think, you know, from my own experience, I think that when you get close to, to real truth, you're getting close to God. That, you know, Christ right. is the truth and God is the truth. So I think that that's what it's about. You're As a writer, you're walking towards the truth. And then there's many things that can lead people astray in that, <laughs> like ego and um, trying to be popular or, or trying to shock people. Um, but I think if you do it with a purity of heart, especially as a, as, a, as a writer who is religious, I think that you're you're walking towards God. Well, Sally, I recognize that it seems that grace, truth, and beauty seem to be so paramount in your epiphany and in your conversion. And um, I would just like to ask, maybe how does the um, the icon of Christ, the one that, you know, you, you cried out to and said, if you're there, you've got to help me. What was the name of that icon and how are other pictures or icons speaking to you um, in this whole conversion process? Well, the icon that I spoke out to was actually in stained glass and it was in, it was in the church, which is quite new in this Carmelite church. So I, I don't know who did it, <laughs> but it's very, very simple. Okay. But I am very into icons, and um, the one that I always um, turn to, actually, again, I, I don't know who painted it, but um, it's a Byzantine okay. icon, and it was the prayer card that um, Father Gregory had for his uh, ordination as a priest, and he gave it to me early on, and I don't even remember him giving it to me, but he must have passed it to me at some point. And that, that kind of Byzantine, the very flat iconography, um, I find them very helpful in prayer because uh, they're so... They're like windows onto God. They don't interfere with with your perceptions, and and they don't um, suggest a, a a contemporary take on Christ or a softening of Christ's face. They just they just lead you into a deeper reality. Thank you, Sally. Uh, I I want to stay on this theme of prayer for a moment. And again, uh, I'm drawing from your own text where you write about um, it was as if the birth, the crucifixion, the resurrection were plunged into my being in one gorgeous blow. And you go on a little later to say, then I knew how to pray. I knew because there was someone there. I knew exactly to whom I was praying. This was my earliest prayer, being attuned to Christ's presence. I I wonder if you had the opportunity to read Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection, where he talks, of course, about the presence of God. Uh, but more importantly, I'm interested in your perspective and maybe this experience that you had, the the first experience, it seems, when you realize you are actually praying to someone. There was a presence there to whom uh, you were both uh, communicating and listening uh, to um, to continue in this journey. Can you talk a little bit about this idea of presence? Yeah, because I, I couldn't pray when I... When I realized that there was a God in, in the very beginning, I, I, I couldn't pray. I, I didn't, I simply didn't know how to do that and I didn't know who I was talking to. And so when, when Christ came to, to me that day in the church and I felt that presence, it was just, um, 
it was just this this tremendous wordless communication that seemed so simple. And and I was very blessed because in those very early days, I felt his presence so palpably. I would really feel him standing in front of me, you know, I, without wishing to sound grandiose about it. I just, I could have put my hand out and touched him. And it was just so, so incredibly tangible that this presence. And it, it's it was lovely, actually, because... You know, it never crossed my mind at that time to say, um, oh, you know, <laughs> while you're here, um, you know, I need, I need X, Y, and Z, or I need to pray for this, that, and the other. And that the petitioning prayer came much later. And this was just about Christ's presence, you know, beside me, really. And, and that's still the way that I pray. Although I think that even I would say with maturity, I am now able to petition God in a much more relaxed way and to talk to God in a much more relaxed way without having to necessarily, you know, be in a room alone with a candle, <laughs> you know, feeling Christ's presence. And um, I know I used to feel very, um, you know, embarrassed about if I was driving and looking for a parking space, I would never pray for a parking space because I thought it was demeaning to, <laughs> to my relationship with God. But now, as a, you know, six-year-old Catholic, I, I can see that actually it's it's quite mature to, to give everything to God, even the small things. It's it's In a way, it's almost arrogance not to petition God. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, in the very early days, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because um, maybe in this uh, case, uh, your atheism and your father's uh, adamacy to uh, not accept, uh, you know, sort of a tainted truth uh, served you well in that you didn't just uh, begin by asking God for things. So many who may have started as believers uh, do begin their deeper prayer life in exactly that way, you know, asking God to sort of prove himself, if you will, whereas right. you were more, because you didn't necessarily believe about uh, in his presence, his existence even, um, you began by asking for affirmation that he was actually there, and then the prayer could deepen from that point on. It's an interesting um, I think uh, dichotomy from from uh, those who may have begun as believers. Yeah, and I think also it's well, important that I to, to note that I, I it, was, it was very important for me to realize that God was very very was a mystery, and, and you know I, I didn't feel I could redu- reduce him to a wish list, and I had to kind of appreciate that he had he had his own mysterious designs on my life. Yeah, that's a that's actually a profound insight <laughs> to have. Many people don't uh, come to that until much later in their prayer life. Well, Sally, I hate to interrupt our conversation, but unfortunately, we are required to take a brief uh, break here at this point. So we're going to break for just about five minutes and then we'll come back. Um, I want to uh, let you know, our audience, that we are, uh, you are listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in your home, and we will be right back. Now, Sally, I'm breaking here because uh, we have to do that. So I've made the announcement. We'll actually continue the conversation right now. Uh, but I just needed okay. to make sure that they had a tape version of that break. So uh, we're going to go ahead and pick up with a question from Francis. Oh, let, it, let me bring us back. Um, well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. Today, we have the great pleasure of being able to interview Sally Reed. Sally's the author of a book, entitled Night's Bright Darkness. It's her own conversion story, and a a wonderful story it is. She offers us great insight, uh, whether you are someone who may be um, in that process of conversion, know somebody who is, or quite frankly, far along in your spiritual journey, uh, she offers wonderful wisdom and insight into this relationship with our loving God, our Father, 
and I'm going to invite Francis Harry uh, to, um, uh, Sally, ask you the next question that I know she's uh, chomping at the bit to do. I have lots of them, not enough time and lots yes. of questions. Sally, would you please tell us about your encounters? You had mentioned earlier about um, an encounter with the Holy Spirit. Uh, we would love to hear about that. Yeah, sure. It, this was a very strange one. And you have to bear in mind, I was so clueless about any of this stuff. Um, I had accepted that there was a God. And then, you know, a few weeks on from that, probably a couple of weeks on from that, I was, um, I had this sensation all the time of being kind of attuned to something that would not let me be. And, and I was having terrible trouble sleeping. And I couldn't bear the church. I had all kinds of troubles about all the church doctrine and and I, you know, I, I didn't know anything about Jesus Christ, really. And um, I couldn't sleep, as I say. And I was so tired. And I was up one night at about 3 o'clock in the morning. And I'd gone downstairs to get myself a drink. And I began reading some T.S. Eliot, who's a poet who I really love. And I turned to a poem that I hadn't read before. And it was called Animula. And this poem talks about the growing burden Sorry, the burden of the growing soul. And I just read a few lines and I just felt something kind of, something kind of hit me. And I put the book down and I went up to bed and I lay down and I felt this, um, almost a physical, uh, presence kind of wash through me. It was like I'd been injected with a drug. I had been so tense and suddenly my body just felt so soft and so, it was like, um, it was like melted candle wax and so warm and the tears just fell down my face. And it wasn't like I lay there and I thought to myself, oh, you know, I give in, all my arguments were wrong. But I felt this sense of surrender, this real sense of surrender. And I wrote in the book, it was it was almost as though I'd been looking over my shoulder all my life and kind of in a twisted position. And I suddenly felt straightened out, just so relaxed. And then I slept. I slept really deeply. And, um, and the next morning, I, I just, I knew something incredible had happened, but I had no idea what it could possibly be. I knew it was something external to me. I, I knew it wasn't my own madness. You know, I knew it was something external, but I just didn't know what. And, um, and I wrote to Father Gregory, who was the priest I was talking to, and he sent me a copy of, um, St. John the Cross's, uh, poem, The Dark Knight. And it wasn't until, well, that's so profound. you know, mon- months later that I identified that as the Holy Spirit. Mm, beautiful, beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So when you got that poem from Father Gregory, how did that impact you? It's interesting that he sent you a poem, and being a poet yourself, um, did reading St. John of the Cross's poetry enable you to understand your experience a little bit better? I, I loved the poem, and I thought it was really beautiful. And what it what it enabled me to do was to accept that I had experienced something. I had experienced an encounter and to and to place it within that tradition. And truth be told, I think it was when I when I got to know Christ, I appreciated the poem even more because, you know, I see Christ as the beloved, so I could understand it even more. But it was it was very important that I could accept what had happened to me as some as, as an encounter because it was yet another encounter that spring. Which poem did, was it that you read of St. John of the Cross? Do you recall? Yeah, it was The Dark Knight. The dark night, um, and how yeah. how might that dark night have been approached before this conversion period, as opposed to to now you're going through this conversion? 
could you could you could you put that a different way? <laughs> Sorry, I'm not well, quite following I, you. As a poet, I I'm sure yeah. that you have pondered uh, the darkness uh, of humanity. Uh, secular yeah. life can be very dark, but there's also <laughs> mystery in that. So I, I'm just wanting to know if through Jan- John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul, uh, you know how you were affected in your perception of darkness and and how that was changing. Mm, I see. Yeah, thank you. I see. Yeah, I um, what I realized as well from the poem was that I was myself swamped in in darkness. And I think what was interesting was that a lot of my thinking went on at night, and I couldn't sleep. So a lot of my time was spent at night thinking about these things. And I realized that what I loved about the poem was it talks about your house being all stilled. And I realized that I had to get to a point where I was still and silent and listening in darkness for this truth to begin to penetrate me. So the darkness began to take on a different, um, a different uh, hue, if you like, because I, I talk about the darkness earlier in the book, where I, where I'm, I'm going through that terrible period of hitting rock bottom, and I felt that I was forever in, on the point of falling back into this black pit. Um, but in a sense, the black, that black pit was is a part of this whole darkness that I was in now, because it's all about going out into the into the space where God is, which can seem such a very long way away. Thank you. Sally, I, I can certainly understand your affinity to Simone Weil and her writings, especially her struggles with uh, entering the church. And you uh, draw from her a particular quote, uh, which I, I gather uh, you shared with someone who was going through a similar conversion, or at least asking you how would they begin this conversion. You sent this quote, and just for the benefit of our listeners, because I know you are familiar with it, I want to read it to you and then ask you to reflect on it in, in the context of this uh, idea of the dark night and also the journey that we make back to God. Simone writes, God wears himself out through the infinite thickness of time and space in order to reach the soul and to captivate it. If it allows a pure and utter consent, though brief as a lightning flash, to be torn from it, then God conquers that soul, and when it has become entirely his, he abandons it. He leaves it completely alone, and it has, in its turn, but gropingly, to cross the infinite thickness of time and space in search of him whom it loves. It is thus that the soul, starting from the opposite end, makes the same journey that God made towards it, and that is the cross. Wow. Can you reflect on that a little bit? Yeah, that's I what I said. <laughs> <laughs> it's so it's so powerful. It's just so powerful. And I think my my favorite bit about the quote is about that um it says the con- if there's consent as brief as a lightning flash, then God will penetrate. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's so beautiful and so true. And I think that that's what I I gave God that spring was this consent. I think it was perhaps slightly longer than a lightning flash, but but you know that's what it was. It was a, it was consent. And, you know, God does come to search for us, and he does come through all that space and time to get to us. And then it is our our job and our, our pleasure and our all that we want to do is to is to reach him. Um, I think that Simone Weil, she's, she's, you know, she, she's quite bleak in the sense we have to search gropingly on our hands and knees. It's true, but it's, isn't it just such a pleasure because we're with Christ? You know, we're moving towards the Father with Christ. Sally, you entered the church on December 14th, the Feast of St. John on the Cross. Did you pick that day because it was his feast day? 
No. <laughs> you have to remember that when all this happened, I was really clueless <laughs> about everything. And the reason I didn't pick the day, um, Cardinal Cotier, who agreed to bring me into the church, he just he picked the date because he was free. And so I was just like, oh, good, good, you're free. Let's do it that day. And then when we got to the Vatican, as it turned out, um, and the Mass occurred, um, I listened to these readings about St. John of the Cross, and I sat there thinking, wow, <laughs> you know, maybe they often read about St. John of the Cross <laughs> in the Mass in the Vatican. I just didn't know, and it was only later I actually discovered that, you know, even, you know, later at dinner, that, that someone said to me, it's the feast of St. John of the Cross. And I thought, well, that was no coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> God's providence. Isn't that amazing? Isn't isn't that amazing though? Incredible. Yes, it is. <laughs> Incredible. One of the things that really interested me in your book um was next to your daughter's school, um, there was a, a church and how you translated the diary of the foundress there. Talk tell us that story. Yeah, well, <laughs> my daughter goes to a Carmelite school and the, the foundress is um the Blessed Maria. Crocifissa Curcio, who was a Sicilian nun who died in 1957. And when my daughter started at the school, I was an atheist and, and wasn't interested. But I'd started to hear kind of rumors about um, the fact that her body was lying in the chapel across the street. And I mm-hmm. assumed that it was a, a model of her body. I, I didn't think it was her real body. And it was only after my conversion, when I was starting to write some articles about various saints, and I was interested in, in St. Bernadette and, and Therese of Lisieux, etc., that I started thinking, well, wow, actually there's a blessed nun right across the street <laughs> from my daughter's school. And so one day I just went to knock on the door and um, was taken in to see um, this incorrupt body of this nun. And I sat down to speak with the nun, um, Suora Maria Asunta, who was in charge of the canonization process. And I didn't know anything about um, Adve Crocifisa at all. And I just spoke about my conversion experience. And I just said to her, in a very artless way, I just said, um, you know, I love the Eucharist. All I, all I want is the Eucharist. I could just sit with the Blessed Sacrament for hours. And she had this look on her face that was just, you know, oh, my goodness. And she went to get um, the diary, the spiritual diary of, um, of Adve Crocifisa which was written just over five years because she, she wrote it out of obedience to her spiritual director. And I took it away and, and read it, and it turned out that Madre Crocifisa was also completely devoted to the Eucharist and adoration, and she, you know, she was truly a nun of the Eucharist. She just, she just lived to receive communion. And, um, and so it was just very obvious that we should translate it into English so that her English-speaking nuns could, could read it as well. And, and it was then that Suor Maria Asunta and I set up adoration on a Thursday um, in the convent chapel so that we could, we could have adoration, you know, so that the host could be above her, her body because her body is just under the altar. It was just so beautiful. Have you finished that translation of her diary? <laughs> well, I did. I finished it, and now I'm I'm actually checking it because oh my goodness, it's really such a job. I mean, <laughs> it's um, she wrote a great. We're anxious piece. to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. It is. I'm I'm actually checking it, and I'm probably a quarter of the way through checking it. But yeah, no, it's very interesting. And- she she had so many mystical experiences. She had just vision after vision and locution after locution. It's absolutely, you know, amazing. And she was having all that that roughly were kind of in the same period of history as as St. Faustina. 
Mm. And how did your translating of her diary affect you now that you're going through this conversion process? I don't, I don't know what point in the process you were at when you started this diary, but I'm sure it has great influence on you. <laughs> it did. It did. I was, I was a three-year-old Catholic when I translated the diary. And, um, and it really, you know, it was, it was quite a journey because in some respects it was a huge joy and just very interesting. And in other respects, because translating is so, um, all consuming and you're really getting in somebody else's head, I, I went through some troubles mm-hmm. with it in, in the sense that she was writing, um, you know, deep in that, of that, that language of, of the sacred heart. And I, I have a big devotion to the sacred heart myself, but there was that whole language about, um, Christ being a prisoner in the tabernacle and, and um, which I, I find I struggle with <laughs> the idea of him as a prisoner, and it was all that kind of mentality that I, I felt a bit bogged down, and that was why it was very useful to have a good spiritual director. Um, but the other interesting thing was that because she had so many mystical experiences, it was interesting to tease out exactly what she experienced through the language that she used, because in Italian, sentire means um, to feel and also to hear. So when she says, you know, I senti, I, I heard Christ, it could also mean I felt Christ. So I had to decide each time mm-hmm. whether she actually kind of heard like a locution or whether she kind of um, intuited the words through prayer. So it's almost like I, you could sense through the way she said things the different gradations of the experience. Mm-hmm. Mm. Sally, you've just teed up my next question perfectly. So uh, if I can, I'm going to return to your own text again. Um, you write, Theodotus of Ansara described the Annunciation as an act of hearing. It was reading this that finally explained this mystery to me, as well as any mystery can be explained. The angel was extraordinary. His news was extraordinary. But Mary was already listening. Her prayer was fertile and receptive. She was constantly, calmly preparing herself for this, God's will. And now she was teaching me how to pray. As a poet, you write, I was used to emptying my mind and receiving from a black well of silence, but I was not used to emptying myself and giving up everything to God. Of course, as Carmelites, we know our devotion to the Blessed Mother, and she does lead us to Christ, and most especially she does this through prayer. Uh, But I have to confess, this was a revelation for me, the way you wrote about the Annunciation as an act of hearing and this preparation uh, which had begun long before the moment, the encounter with the angel. And I'd ask you to reflect a little bit on that idea of uh, prayer as hearing. Yeah, yeah. I, the reason, I, I came to that partly through reading Benedict, um, who talked about Theodotus of, of Ansela, and, um, and also because I was writing another poem about the Annunciation, because I've written several about the Annunciation, and I always get to thinking you know, about Mary's, state of mind and and what could possibly have happened that day and and i realized one day that um you know it wasn't like she was just kind of busying herself and all of a sudden there was this huge shock it she she really must have gone through so much preparation to to get to that point where she could actually receive our lord within her you know in that completely physical way i realized that um you know god didn't come across somebody who was kind of raw in that sense. I think that she was a very holy girl and that she was, she must have been, her prayer must have been very pure and very, very quiet. And she probably didn't have her little wish list saying, you know, oh, <laughs> I'd like this and I'd like that. And she probably did have that prayer of just, 
offering herself up and um, and being disposed to God's will, I guess. So that's that's what my reflection was on that. Well, Sally, you wrote that you raced up Mount Carmel, and of course, to Carmelites that means a, a great deal. This uh, the the physical Mount Carmel, um, but also the spiritual Mount Carmel. So um, I wanted to know how have the Carmelites influenced your faith journey, and how would you reach out to other atheists and and Catholics maybe who have lost their faith? What would you say to them to invite them up the mountain? <laughs> Well, I, you know, St. John of the Cross was very, very important to me because one of the things that really put me off religion, if I can think about, you know, other atheists and what to say, um, one of the things that really put me off religion was this idea that you could um, petition God for all the little bits of your life and get him to arrange everything and everything's very reducible to, you know, our comfortable existence. And I talk about the, you know, the bearded God in the, the puppet master in the sky, um, I found that a very um, kind of silly notion of God. So when I when I read mm-hmm. Mount Carmel, I, I loved it because I could I could see this ineffable, inconceivable darkness, which to me is just so much more realistic. I mean, that's that's God, that's the Father that we're journeying towards. Mm-hmm. So I think it's um, I think for people who are who are fed up and disillusioned with religion and find religion selfish and silly, I think that St John of the Cross is a really good antidote, and, and also because he talks so much about purifying yourself and letting go of ego and all of the preparation that you have to do to meet God. I mean, it's hard, but it's so much more realistic and, it, and it's so beautiful. So, um, mm, thank so you. yeah, I mean, the Carmelites generally have, have been, um, Teresa of Lisieux, Teresa of Avila, um, have been so, so helpful to me in their description of, of prayer life and their, and their relationship with, with the Trinity. It's just been, it's been so enriching. Thank you. Sally, you talk about the Mass as the ultimate poem and even viewing the church as a poem, which I think is a beautiful um, metaphor. Talk to us a little bit about um, how you came to that conclusion and and about that metaphor. Yeah. Well, I think it's because um, poets are always trying to express the inexpressible. That's what you do with a poem. You You take some truth that's very hard to define and you kind of pin it down in the form and, and God is the ultimate poet. That's what he does. I mean, he takes the inexpressible. For everybody else, it's inexpressible, but he expresses it primarily in Christ. That's what the incarnation is, is, is Christ is, is God's expression of himself. And, and the mass is the truth that underpins our whole existence and our salvation. And I think it's wonderful how he takes that whole historical event and that event that still continues in eternity and manages it to give it to us in a 45-minute package of language and structure and um and it functions like a poem in the sense that um you know we have the bread in the hand that's actually the flesh of christ it's almost like it's not a metaphor but it kind of functions like a metaphor you know it's it's the most beautiful truthful poetry that we that we can possess um and i think the the church's poem um i realized that when i was looking around at all the different christian denominations you know, you you can pick your structure. You can pick no structure or hierarchy, like the Quakers. You can pick um, other churches that have other kind of traditions and songs and do do things in a different way. Um, but I realized that the church, you can just see that it's divine. It's made divinely, and it's it comes, it pours all the way down from from the Trinity, you know, through 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 Mary and the angels and the saints, and 
it's just so beautifully structured and and you know um the successor to St Peter and um the cardinals and it and it all it's so beautifully put together that it's not by chance and um you know it has to be preserved Sally I um am disappointed actually we're running out of time there are so many more questions I see written down in front of me here with Tim and Francis and myself uh, that we would love to be able to ask you. But I do want to ask you one last question before we uh, close with our prayer and uh, and signing off. And um, it has to do, again, with your writing and how that uh, informs your faith. You talk about the church having taught what you instinctively always knew as a writer. And as somebody who's done some writing myself, I know this sense of... Um, understanding the smallness of the events in our life that we appear or, or, or view so often as small and insignificant. You write, the smallness of life does not diminish it. The brevity of a moment does not reduce its importance. Death, of course, is not the end. Um, and, and I'd ask you just to reflect maybe in the context of Therese of Lisieux, who taught us this so well, that it's the small events in our life, the apparently insignificant uh, moments in our life that really carry great weight for us. And a writer understands that. I think someone who prays understands that. And I just ask you as a maybe a final reflection to uh, share your insight on that. Yeah, and I think that you know, writers, I know as a writer, I'm always looking for the smaller things because they express the bigger things, you know, in much the same way that I was talking about earlier. And, um, and I think that, you know, Therese of Lisieux, she, she was such a genius because, you know, especially today, but in every age, when we're looking at, at things that are, can be so bad, like in Syria, and things can be so heinous, and you're wondering, you know, what can I do for God, and what can I do for, for humanity? It really is in personal sanctity and the tiny, the tiny bits of life that, that we can do something, and God, God knows that, and God appreciates that. Um, it, things don't have to be large, and I think sometimes when we try and make things large, that's when we make mistakes. I think that we have to kind of focus on the on the small things and, and the small gestures and, and the small kindnesses that, um, and it's, it's an easy, it's an easy truth to say, but I think it's one that we, we forget very easily because we, we tend to forget that it's God's eyes that are watching us and they're the most important ones. Yeah, very well said. Thank you. Well, Sally, we do have to wrap it up. I want to thank you for coming on to Carmelite Conversations. I know our conversation with you is enticing us to go out and read your book, Night's Bright Darkness, um, about your conversion story, and that's by Ignatius Press. So we we look forward to uh, hearing more from you, and we thank you for coming on to our program today. And, and Sally, we will be posting your book your book on our website so our listeners for your benefit will be able to see both title and where they can get the book so uh, for anybody who is interested in getting a copy certainly it's available uh, from uh, Ignatius Press and in any uh, number of other venues and we want to thank Tim Beat for coming into the studio and uh, introducing us to Sally and um, this has just been a very rewarding hour and uh, so we're, we're very blessed and let us end with a closing prayer and this is from Father Gabriel of St. Mary Magdalene from his Divine Intimacy, which is a Carmelite classic, and it is for the day of the Epiphany of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O oh my Jesus, while I beg you to reveal yourself to the world, I also beseech you to reveal yourself more and more to my poor soul. Let your star shine for me today and point out to me the road which leads directly to you. May this day 
be a real epiphany for me, a new manifestation to my mind and heart of your great majesty. He who knows you more loves you more, O Lord, and I want to know you solely in order to love you, to give myself to you with ever greater generosity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you, our listeners, again. A reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, Christian Voice in Your Home. Until we are with you again next week, God bless.